0: Buddy Cage. Buddy Cage. I love
1: Buddy. We played a lot of shows together 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was me, Vassar, and him, and we would just go absolutely crazy and have a blast.
2: Vassar Clements, the violin player.
1: Yeah, Vassar's my man.
2: One time when you were at the, you mentioned it in our first interview, when you were doing the Brandy House things, which was a residency at a small club, he came for a
1: whole week, right? He came for nine days and wouldn't leave. (laughs) (laughs) I think He said he had so much fun. We told him our bass player could jump on the bass, a uh, German bass, and we'd spin him around, and it would solo, and then we'd light it, and it would burn. it <laughs> have to jump off in the last second. Vassar we went, that's the craziest thing I ever. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell a great story about Vassar Clements. His seven brothers, and every one of them is Vassar Clements. No. Uh, yes, and their middle name is Carol... And he's Vassar Lee Clements. There's Bill and Charlie. So they were in a football game and they would go, Vassar Clements replacing Vassar Clements. (laughs) And in comes Vassar Clements 4. And it was in Kissimmee, Florida. And him telling that story was, and six of the seven were playing high school team. And every Clements comes in, but they're all named Vassar Clements. And his real name is Vassar Lee. And his his brother, I mean, they're all that, Vasser. That's just George Foreman. That's wonderful. <laughs> Vassar needed a grill. I just, I just, I just think the, I just think he ought, we ought to bring him back, and he'll be the king of the world for years, man. There's nobody better than Vassar. Yeah. Man. There was
2: one time you were on stage with him at Harvest Fest, and I swear, Colonel, and you you can dodge us all you want, but I swear it's the one time I really saw you angry on stage. Was he was soloing, and your guitar player at the time. Should I say his name? Uh, no, 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 Your no, guitar? No, 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 we, we know. Yeah. He, stepped, he stepped all over him, and then you shot him a glare like I've never seen. I was like, if he ever shoots that glare at me, I'm going to melt.
1: Hey, that's why I'm the Colonel boy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Listening to Inside Out with Turner and
2: Seth, and welcome to our fifth anniversary special. Happy
0: anniversary! Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary!
2: And of course, we start this two-part extravaganza with the man, uh, if not for whom we wouldn't even exist. Our, our godfather. Who is that, Seth? The Colonel, Colonel
0: Bruce!
2: Hampton. <laughs> yes. We're so so glad
0: to have him as part of our history. You know he 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 always comes back into my dreams at the and it's always so interesting. It's like the other day I woke up, my alarm was set for seven o'clock, and he and I, I'm not going to tell you the dream, but he was in the dream. You, did, you already did tell me this was pretty tell, wild, actually. And then I like look at my my phone. I wake up and I'm like, all right, let me look at my phone. It's like like twenty seconds later, my alarm would go off. Wow. That was a little, a little clip from him, and
2: I just want to point out that um, we've done, we've had a few interviews with him, and we've done uh, several episodes. We we plan on doing another one May first in honor of the Hampton seventy at the Fox Theater the night that we celebrated and lost Colonel Bruce Hampton. A night that seemed awful at first, but as time goes by, seems increasingly poetic. But if you want to hear a lot of his music, and a special. Honoring him and Vassar Clements and a lot of Vassar's music as well, many of which is not released. Check out episode 76.
0: And 75, 74, 73, 72, 71.
2: We'll check 70. them all out. That'd be great. <laughs> but two of the people that we're, we're going to be um, giving Seth and I have each picked five
0: favorite moments. And over the next two episodes, we will be well, going. Ju- hold on. Not just favorite moments. We've we we, we picked moments that we feel represent WTNS kind of maybe what we do well if we do
2: anything um, if we do, we do have anything. weaknesses we have strengths
0: and folks not us arguing that is definitely a strength
2: that is a strength but you just have to go find those yourself because i don't i'm not going out and picking those out because they annoy me they still annoy me because you're annoying but as far as the great moments and conversations where we set the uh you know, Guests at ease, if we you set will. our subject at ease, and they really start to feel like they're just hanging out. They're not you know, being peppered with questions. And we hope
0: you feel like you're hanging out listening.
2: We have the people who I've spoken with who are most loyal listeners do feel like they like to chill out and just feel like they're in the room, flying the wall, listening to our conversations. But um,
0: we are a member of the Osiris family. Yes, yeah, Osiris Media. And you can find Osiris at Osirispod.com. And of course, if you haven't already... Get on their Twitter and their Facebook and, of course, their Instagram. It's always popping with great information. There's so
2: many great podcasts at this point. It's just amazing what they've done. RJB, Tom Marshall, and everybody uh, growing this company. They just had their most successful month ever last month. Most downloads ever by far, Yeah um one and of you the could, thing- you
0: could check out all of our episodes there as well as our website inside out wtns.com but at osirispod.com not only will you see all of ours and there's a stream there you can listen to everything right there as yeah, spotify etc but you can also check out all these other podcasts on the network it's a really wonderful network like one is called
2: eric krasno plus one eric is a brilliant guitarist who's played with everybody and he has musicians come in and um you know, sometimes the musician-on-musician musician interview, I mean, that's kind of a hit-and-miss thing. It can be the best in the world, and it can be a slap-and-tickle-nothing fest. But these two, uh, he recently had on Carl Denson and Michael League. Both
0: are guests. Actually, wait a second. Both <laughs> were
2: separately recent guests on that show that are also two of the people featured in part one of this. So so please give that show a look-see, and particularly those two Don't episodes. Don't look
0: at it. Listen to it.
2: We'll give it a look-see, decide whether to listen to it, and then give it a listen.
0: Just listen. When do you listen to podcasts the most, Seth? Uh, Well, when I'm working on ours. (laughs) See, Seth
2: and I are very opposite. I listen to podcasts every day. He listens to podcasts. I have a job. He he just took a a seven-hour road trip from Florida and didn't listen to one. But whatever the case, are you excited for our first highlight, Seth?
0: Yes, I am. But before we even do that, I want to also thank, throughout the years we've been doing this, we've had, like you said, some really good loyal listeners that have been supportive. Uh, We also had some friends that were supportive, and uh, I want to give one of them a shout-out. Robert Polay with Polay Clark uh, really helped keep us alive in in, uh, a good portion of our podcast. It doesn't take a lot of money to do this, as many people know. There's a million podcasts, but we wanted to do it right and, and get the right microphones and get the right softwares and all this sort of stuff. And without Polet softwares, Clark, yes, not just one software. Oh, shut up, Rob! But without pole and Clark's help, well, while you're thanking people, what about Harris Sullivan? What about oh, jo- good old old Harris Sully, what Robert Kwan, Josh Thane, uh, Papa Josh Thane. Now, congratulations! Well, should we give him a mazel tov as he's got a beautiful kid? Him and his wife really popped a nice one out of the other. Knew that kid was going to be a I mean, yeah, to yeah, the- of course. Come on. This kid's going to be a model um wonder dog sound studios was helpful in the past and let's not forget the diamond street studios right there and oh, god we got to check in with spencer it's been a while live for live music too for a little while there for there, a yes time. yes and i mean they live for live they're still on all of our they we did not go but we chose not to go back and take them off of all of that because no they were way. our
2: partner at that time because we didn't work out together it was kind of don't get me started. Read my book whenever I write it. But <laughs> but they're a great part of the community. They support oh, yeah. music. And, and actually, let's... Oh, Georgia Comes Alive, which when we do our next Georgia uh, episode, I'll talk about it more there. But they did a great job with Georgia Comes Alive. So And um, Ari Fink did well with that too. But also, uh, I feel like I'm, for, I'm forgetting. Who are we hey, forgetting? Listen, we're Ira Gross, my very good friend who I've been doing walks with throughout COVID. Also, thank you for your
0: help, Ira. And let's not forget, when we started this... I think we both were married and now we're divorced. Not us married together. Rob and I were never married. I mean, we're no. like a married couple, but we were never married. No. But lots of life, is, life has happened in these five years. Very different divorces. Well, yeah, I'm friends with my ex-wife. and She's I, also the mother of my child, so. I'm pleased with my, the
2: fact that my ex-wife leaves me alone for the most part.
0: Well, you know, you have your dog, which I'm
2: surprised she never came after. The only time she checked in on me was when your mother was ill, so that was nice. Yeah, well. Well, there was one other thing, which was weird, but I think that was by accident. You were drunk and you texted her. What do you expect? No, I, no, no. Oh, is it the other way around? That way. Yeah, oh, okay. probably.
0: Anyway, though, that, we're not talking about ex-wives here, but lots of lots has happened in this five years. Do you remember when we first started this podcast before we even jump into any of these uh, clips? Well, we had been talking
2: about doing it for months. And then, you know, with Seth, Seth's an idea guy. He throws out a lot of ideas and some a lot of them don't stick. And then
0: it was just kicking around. And then one day you had a party at your house. Well, before the party, I decided to get some equipment to to do some uh, with my activities. I was working. I decided to up my my game with, with being able to present things a certain way. So I bought some was equipment. That for those boat parties or something? No, it's for the land ones. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I bought this gear so I could better sound and 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 present. You know, poolside entertainment, if you will. And so I bought this gear, and then I'm, I'm sitting here, and we have a party at the house. And Brian Torwilliger also thank you. Oh, good.
2: I'm glad you remembered him.
0: Yeah. And uh, Brian, uh, w- w- you you brought it up. And, and I don't remember play by play, but it came down to- Brian was pushing for it. I remember yeah. we were talking, Brian was like, let's just do it. So All, we cleared engineer- out the room- uh- we cleared out the party essentially at had, first. Quiet in the set, quiet in the set, you know. And we uh, and then you and I record our first podcast right then and there. It was quiet for about five
2: minutes, and then you know that crowd—they're just—it was like no big deal to them. I'll bet none of them have ever listened to an episode of this show, have they?
0: Well, my ex-wife didn't because she knew that she heard me enough; she didn't need to hear me anymore. Well, I remember there was a couple lines that you said that irked her early on. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, anyway, enough about my ex-wife. And I just got off yours. So, hey. oh,
2: <laughs> So, this one. Michael League is the founder of Snarky Puppy, which is this amazing ensemble of musicians. And um, we went to down not downtown Atlanta. We went down. It wasn't downtown uh, Abbey. Off Williams Road, Williams Street, whatever. It was a right? hotel. Yeah, it was a hotel near Phillips and uh, the Tabernacle and all that. And um, I don't know. It was just so cool. He, he brought us up. And he was, actually, he was working on the solo album that he didn't release until just this year. Oh, yeah. The record he's been talking about working on for like eight years. He was working on one of those tracks. He's like one of these constant, and he took a break, sat down with us. We only had one mic. We
0: only had one mic, and we're sitting on the corner of a hotel bed, Rob and I. Which, uh, you know,
2: it allowed me, if Seth tried to interrupt, you'll hear a couple points where Seth starts to interrupt Michael. And just picture me pulling the mic away from Seth. Anyways, so here's... We're gonna have a little uh, clip here of Michael League talking about working with the legendary songwriter and musician. That uh, band Rob from Twitter. Go on. Yeah, because of Isle of Wight. Yeah, he's a little bit of a lightning rod on Twitter. Some people are annoyed by him. Um, I don't know. Even though he he uh, blocked me, I still think he's fine. It's a, he's a little he's a little touchy. He's a little bit you know he's a little stubborn. Let's say. Well, without further ado,
0: Michael League.
3: a reason why old people are stubborn. <laughs> you know what I mean. There's a re- there's a reason for it. It's because they've done shit throughout their whole lives that was awesome. <laughs> so they have like they know they have like the living experience of knowing what is awesome. And especially somebody like Crosby, he didn't just create great art. He was famous. He was rich. He was like a god of folk. And rock music, iconic.
2: If I may say one thing, I've been seeing music a long time. I've seen a ton of shows, and one of the most memorable things is just him and Graham singing Guinevere. Every single time, it would just give me chills and mesmerize me. But continue, please.
3: Yeah, I mean, he's that's part of his lexicon. He's heavy. He's so heavy, and he's, and he's stubborn. Are you talking talking about Rob? (laughs) (laughs) I'm heavy. Also, Crosby. I mean, he's stubborn but he's exceptionally open-minded exceptional i mean it's it's startling to me that a 76 year old guy who has had the world in the palm of his hand for so long is first off is so prolific i mean i was at his house 10 days ago writing with him and he's I was like Alright what do you got to work with And he's like These 11 sets of lyrics I have these 9 guitar ideas That are you know In different tunings I mean it's like
2: Yeah that's what he's known for Very creative tunings right He's mm, still doing that huh? Yeah exactly. And he's writing with James His son a lot
3: Yeah He basically Yeah he Like James produces His more like electric records And I produce his more acoustic records Gotcha So I mean The guy is like I mean it's 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 when you really think about it, it's it's overwhelming. It's like how he's still such a fireball of creativity, you know.
2: So how can you not go into a situation with him
3: and not be intimidated by him at all? I think because we're we're we have a dynamic that is uh, natural. Natural. I think we're very similar people. You know, I'm I'm. I, I, You know, just we're products of very different generations. You know, he was 20. He was a millionaire. You know, free love, free drugs. I grew up in a generation where it's like partying hard as a musician is like having an IPA with your bowl of organic kale. Right. And love is very expensive. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's, you know, that, that makes us different. But our attitudes are the same. Like, we don't take anything seriously. We take... We take everything seriously but at the same time like we're bo- we both love to bullshit, we love to make fun of each other, we love to, you know, it's like there's a there's a mutual understanding and and there's just I don't know how to explain it other than like a very healthy dynamic between the two of us. I will say that the first time I went to his home to write he gave me like a a guitar part, like a whole kind of verse and chorus and he's like I don't really know what to do with this. And so I was like, all right, let's do a brainstorm for lyrics. So I gave him a concept, you know, basically about... uh, Well, no, actually, it was his concept. He said he was like... I said, what is it? Is there anything you want to write about? And he said, I want to write about people who send other people's kids to war. And so I was like, okay. Very cool, you know. Fortunate son kind of vibe, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I was like, all right, what do you think of when you think of that? And he just... Did like a stream of consciousness brainstorm? He just like, kind of, just verbal diarrhea for ten minutes. Is this? Are
2: you recording? Oh, you're writing it down
3: on a sheet of paper. I just wrote it all down. Like, like whenever you'd say a phrase that I liked, I would just write it down. Write it down. You know, blah blah blah. And then I was like, all right, like take a nap, you know. So he went and took a nap, and I took it all. All the ideas and wrote lyrics and formed it into a story and did a melody and th- three hours later he came in and I sang it to him which was that was intimidating I'll tell you I mean right. this was the only intimidating moment I've had with Crosby I would say is the first time that I sang to him my lyrics right on his song with his ideas like
2: when he's coming out of a nap you <laughs> commanded him to take
0: <laughs> and, did you-
3: <laughs> <laughs> and did you sing it like yourself or like him like me like me and I sang it to him. And and he was like, I mean, he was just like, you know, you motherfucker, I didn't know you could write lyrics. I thought you had an instrumental band, you know. I was like, well, I, t- I didn't really write these. I mean, it's kind of like you kind of just like shat gold on this sheet of paper. And then I just, I just kind of like sanded the edges of it, you know. And he was like, he was like, totally, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. This line fucking sucks, but the rest of this is, you know. And, and like, then that was your line. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it was just like right off to the, to the, and then it was like from that moment that was our system, and that's still our system. For With the r- naps still. Naps built in, totally built in. Yeah, we did it. We did it a week and a half ago, and and I would say that after that moment, I mean, I, it's terrifying showing your lyrics to your favorite lyricist. You know what I mean? And then singing. I just felt, I felt kind of vulnerable. But then when he, once he got into it, when he showed that he was into this system, then from then on we were just running. We did three tunes in three days, mm. you know, from start to finish, and and we just did three more a week and a half ago for this new record with Becca Stevens and Michelle Willis and Crosby and I, had like, like a four, kind of like a CSNY thing, but Michelle's playing Moog bass and Rhodes, mm. Becca's playing ukulele, charango, guitars, I'm playing weird guitars, and Cross is playing guitar and singing and four-part harmony, and each of us are taking turns singing lead and all this kind of stuff, you know? So it's really interesting. It's a very interesting project. David is, uh, I mean, I don't know anyone his age that is doing it like he's doing it.
2: I got to say, I I agree with Michael there. Do you? Um, And I don't know if anyone's noticed, but we are beginning and ending these segments. These are in a cassette motif,
0: Seth. Why is that, Rob?
2: That's because we have just lost the inventor of the cassette.
0: Oh! This
2: is a very, very sad loss in the history of recorded music, and um, his name is Lou Otten's.
0: Oh, I figured his last name was cassette. No, nope, no, nope,
2: he's not a he's not one of these people that has to name everything off of it themselves, um, like us with the podcast, I guess. But, anyways, that's why you're hearing a start of a cassette and a stop of a cassette before and after each of these segments. So, so what's next on deck? Well, just real quick, I agree with Michael League about how David Crosby's the only one of his age who's doing it the way he's doing, who's who's still putting out a high high volume of original music and still working uh, very hard at his craft. Yes, coming up next is your buddy, Carl Denson.
0: Before, what? Go ahead. No, you have a point, though. Let's talk about that for a second. So, I will... I do You're it, all
2: over the place. Uh, <laughs> makes I, you I people know? think we script this stuff. This is extemporaneous conversation. Yes, of course. It's not Podcast. for everyone.
0: So... What I liked about also the Michael League there that was a great example of how the guest got comfortable like he mm-hmm. he I've had other musician friends of mine that uh, that listened to it this because that that was an episode that was like a musician's musician you know what I mean episode so these musicians listened to him and they noted that he opened up to us and shared in ways that he doesn't necessarily do with everyone um, and we got we got some really good information out of him, and I think that's because he was comfortable. But you asked really good questions. Like you were you, I would have never have thought of. Well, I wouldn't thought of anything to ask him other than like snarky puppy questions.
2: Do you wanna do you wanna play Jamley Feud? <laughs> fuck you, dude.
0: Seriously, you know what? <laughs> You're lucky there's there that even existed. Otherwise, we'd have no guests. They'd be like Rob no. Turner, the writer that writes way too many words for one paragraph. Oh. No. Anyway, folks, what do we got next? We got my and, dearest friend. Yeah, I remember this one. I had to
2: park across the street <laughs> and spend money at the coffee shop so that it didn't get towed. And I left the receipt on the dashboard because this is at a hotel near Buckhead. And they are jerks about parking, even if you have a reason to be there. So that's what I had to do. And then Carl was very welcoming. We hung out. And then actually Carl was doing a, a Rob Turner move. Uh, Working the uh, housekeeping staff to extend oh, yeah. his, his, his checkout, which I do all the time, and it was funny to see Carl doing the exact same thing. Well, Carl Denson, saxophone, wonderful
0: player from the Grey Boy All Stars. This uh, this interview though, when we sat down with him, when I think about it, it feels like yesterday, but it was like three years ago. Mm.
2: And here's the thing: as you f- folks who've listened to. Heard me say that one of the reasons I like to do these interviews in person Is to read the body language of the guest Because if I wasn't able to do that I wouldn't have gone into the Rolling Stones As much as I did with Carl Because he clearly was excited To talk about the Stones yeah. So we went with it And that's we're going to get a little A little segment of what he talked about uh, His first time Actually being on stage at a show And how he misinterpreted a, a signal And it, it, it learned it, uh, it, They can
0: listen for themselves yeah, check it out check Why don't we go ahead and roll the tape
2: What kind of feedback like, like, does Jagger go back and listen to the recordings and say hey a little more of this a little more like that do you get any feedback or is it all
4: just um pretty much on my solos um you know I know what I'm, i know what it is you know l- luckily I feel like you know it was a perfect spot because I really love Bobby Keys, so I listen to all that stuff a lot so when I played him, the only thing the only thing that happened my my one trip to the principal's office was i I um, we were playing brown sugar and you know it's the first time i played it right so i played the solo you know kind of very similar to bobby keys and then we get to the end vamp mick and and ronnie kind of looked over at me like you know like what are you doing you know like play something you know so i thought oh they want to hear me blow you know they're vamping it out right so i start ripping you know <laughs> and um so after the after they finished the song Daryl kind of sidles up to me and and says, "Hey, um, so at the end, you know, um, you know, kind of grab this lick with me, you know, and um, and he plays boom, 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 do do do, brown sugar." Oh, I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I do that like four times, and then I then I solo, and he and he's like. It's not really like a solo, you know, and I and it's like ding 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 ding. It's you know because we had we had played the record, but it was been three years ago, you know, so I kind of forgot that. Bobby kind of vamps out with the the guitars, but but
1: but but but
4: you know he's really just just kind of riffing with the band. He's not soloing over it, so so. I, so I was like, okay, I got it, got it. So I went back to the hotel that night, and I listened to the song. I was like, oh, shit, that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and um, and so then the next day, we had dress rehearsal in the, in the big stadium, you know? And, um, you know, so we get there, and, and um, Daryl, like, right away comes up to me, and he's like, yeah, I just want to make sure you're <laughs> straight on that thing. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I listened to it. I totally know what you're talking about, and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like... You know, and he goes, yeah, because Mick, Mick, you know, asked me if, if he should say something, and I was, and I said I would say something, so I was like, oh crap, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, uh, so, so, so then after after sound check, I'm I'm back in the back practicing, and and then mix uh, one of Mick's security guys comes over and says, "Hey, uh, Mick would like to see you in his office." (laughs) I'm like, "Oh crap! I got to go to the principal's office." You know, so so (laughs) I go in there and it was it was was no big deal. You know, he's just like, "I just want to make sure you're straight on that." I was like, "Yeah, dude, I totally listened to it. I know exactly what I what I didn't do." So so I'm cool, and you know, and so now now it's it's totally fine. But that was just that was my one incident where I was like, "Oh, okay, pay a little more attention here. This is not you know." Carl Denson's society universe this is this is the Rolling Stones and
2: although two Carl Denson fans that's the greatest brown sugar ever <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: exactly we there's a lot perfect. of dichotomies in that world isn't it though I mean it's like the music of the working man gritty yet it's the most ostentatious backstage in the world you know, they're so casual and, and loose on stage, stumbling around smiling, looking like they're barely but they're so calculated in what they do and Dude, so well. Those rehearsed. Those
4: guys are they and that was another thing is like seeing these guys at seventy years old yeah. working so freaking hard. It was
2: they, they rehearsed stuff cold, right? Yeah,
4: it was it I mean they but they, they do like three weeks of rehearsal. Yes. And they get in there and in a five hour rehearsal they play four hours plus. You know, like they take a little again. Break. They're
0: in their late seventies. You yeah. know, it's like well, they're, no, they're in their early early. 70s. Okay, I thought they yeah. were easy kid. tiger. Hey, yeah. no, sorry, i want to get them someday. I, my beard went gray, and everyone's much older. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm sorry.
4: <laughs> yeah, we we want to we want to think that, but it's it's not that big of, of a gap. You know, they they, um, I mean, Mick would get in there and and sing four hours, like singing, like that's rough at my age. You know, and he'd get in there and sing four hours. And I was just like, whoa, these guys are serious. You know, it like really put everything in perspective.
0: Gotta love Carl Denton, Mr. Sexual Chocolate himself, who, by the way, coming to America too. coming to America is out on Amazon right now. And um, (laughs) Carl got some good screen time on it. Good. I heard Eddie
2: Murphy on Mark Maron. It was, uh, I've been kind of down on Mark Maron lately, but it was nice to hear him do a really good job old school. I hadn't been listening to as much Mark Maron, but maybe I should change that because uh, I really enjoyed hearing him talk with Eddie Murphy. Check that one out, folks, if you'd like. But yeah, Carl Dunson, you could kind of tell not just that he's a great player, but as we learned in that episode, he was uh, recommended by Lenny Kravitz to play with the Stones, and you could see he's just a great, cool guy. He's a, he's a good. Person. if you want if you were in a band he'd be a, he'd be a cool one to have out and um, check out gray boy all-stars they're just still they're still awesome that's his, his original band check out Carl Denson's tiny universe and check out that episode it was episode number 58 by the way for you folks wondering michael League was episode 59 and this next bit is from another friend of Seth's I have a funny story I'm gonna save it for after this but I have a funny story about Jeff coffin and Seth Oh. the original episode was episode sixty nine. If you want to hear the whole thing, but Seth, you know what's coming up here. Don't I you?
0: do, I do, folks. But uh, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blow the story. But what I will say is, coffin was fun. We there's other clips that I cut of this uh, interview that didn't quite make it, but we had a lot of fun. That interview, we were back in the tabernacle. It was on Priest McGee New Year's Eve. Uh, Run. Co- New Year's run, New Year's run, right? And coffin came down, and Humphreys uh, they're so Umphreys is always so great to us, Kevin and Vince and the whole team. They always really take good care of us and and um, make it so that we can re- do the these interviews. Uh, anyway, my point though is uh, they set us up so nice backstage at the Tabernacle and coffin. We were, I, I mean, how much, how many, how much laughter do we have to cut out yeah. of that interview? It was we just kept giggling. It was fun. All right, we'll comment on this after.
2: I think at this point it's best to just roll, roll up to play the cassettes. After. Okay,
0: hang on, I gotta take the other one out. I gotta put it in. Oh, do you have welcome. a pen, do you have a pencil? This guy gotta. All right, I, I got it. right, welcome to my all world. Right. All, right, all right, play the tape. Here team. we go. Here
2: we go. Talk about playing "Ants Marching" for the first time without Boyd.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was clean up aisle seven. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
6: Well, you know, here was the thing. Like, I think that was in um, um, Midwest somewhere, Milwaukee, yeah. um, um, uh, be, or, uh, Minnesota, maybe Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was in Minneapolis before Min- the
0: Minneapolis.
6: Minneapolis, where Corey
2: Wong, who was opening the show tonight, is from. Yeah.
6: It was right before the Super Bowl, and and it was really funny because. Because we didn't know where the count off was Like we, like it sort of came in And then it didn't come in right? And we were sort of like what's going on And then like I'm looking at Rashawn, He's looking at me and we're both looking at Dave And like we're trying to figure out well is anybody else Coming in or are we the only ones Or what you know <laughs> One of those moments, but but here's the thing, man. We have those moments fairly often, you know that that awkward moments with Jeff y- Coffin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's your and, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so so those those things will happen on a live gig, and and you know we we've talked about a lot. I mean, I talked to my students about this also, and I you know we we've kind of taken on one of the things that i tell my students which is every time you take the stage you need to have with you an imaginary bucket and it's a bucket of fuck it and so that when you make a mistake you reach in and you just go "Ah, fuck it and you release it because otherwise like this domino effect that can happen can really get inside your mind on every tune, man. And you have to be able to to get past it and leave it behind and not dwell in that moment. Because then you take yourself out of the present moment and it happens again and again and again. And then it's over. You know? And so these are things that that we have to deal with on a nightly basis. And Dave is dealing with stuff the other night at at the gig in in Miami. Like he could hear himself for about 20 seconds and his his headphones Uh, went totally out. Completely. And so he's playing guitar, (laughs) and he can maybe hear a little bit of the house, maybe, and uh, and this went on for like five or six tunes, where it was kind of coming in and out and in and out. And he, man, he, you know, he was just like, "Wow, man!" He says, "Thank you guys, because I can't hear anything." You know, he says, "I'm I'm like on an island by myself somewhere." It's got to be so (laughs) weird. And I just love that story.
2: And folks, you've got to know. That it's, this is indicative of how cool the Dave Matthews band is. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they, we, they remixed, remastered whatever so that we could play them messing up.
0: That's confidence. Say, and, say that one more time so it's really clear.
2: They remixed that. They didn't just give us the tape. They remixed it, mastered it, so it sounded really good so we could really hear them fuck up, which is confident. They're like, they they, they're, they know it's a rare thing, so why not have fun with this rarity of the Dave Matthews band completely train wrecking? You know, there are some bands out there, you can't even get music from that at all. No. Or they give you the wrong music. Or, or they make you wait forever for music. Yeah.
0: Or they give you, you can only have this song for three weeks. Yeah. And like, you can only go uh,
2: 20 seconds. Oh, God. Just calm down. Get the music out there. We're we're making documents that are going to sit out there in perpetuity. Maybe work with us, which is what Jeff Coffin did. And, and, and uh, ear up and records. Check out. There's so much great music. Oh yeah, his, his
0: that's his label, not to be confused with the Dave Matthews label. The, yes, ear up. Uh, lots of good stuff there. Uh, and he's got he's got great stuff. Lots of video stuff going on from Nashville. He's he's really immersed in that scene there. It's awesome. So
2: um, there was one night was this I don't even know if this was in Umphries was in Umphreys was in town or when um, Snarky I think oh, it was you, when Snarky was in town Are you talking
0: about a coffin? Yes. And and going to Cabby's place. Williams' That was Jam. A, that was the night it was not New Year's Eve. It was the night before New Year's or it was yeah, it was 12:30. All right. Yeah. So um so Seth goes up
2: there are all these like world-class amazing musicians and Seth has a trumpet with him. And next thing I know... No, I didn't I see- have a trumpet with me.
0: God, we, were at, we were at Kebby's uh, club. So, and, was someone else's so letting you there use was, their and, trumpet? And one of the trumpet players that sits in with uh, Voodoo Visionary, uh, he doesn't play with them all the time, but gosh, I forget his name. He's like, I got my trumpet. And he looks at me, I'm like, because he knows I play, but... And so he's like, he gives me his trumpet I'm like yeah but I can't he goes he cuts me in front of every all these it's like yeah. old school jazz style one at a
2: time so from my perspective I'm sitting here and all of a sudden I look over and Seth's on deck to get on stage and then he comes up and Seth starts blowing and I know Jeff Coffin isn't sitting right behind me because I was talking with him you know a few minutes before and I go to look back at Jeff Coffin to, to give Seth shit and Coffin's got his phone out and a big smile on his face he's, he's documenting every second
0: of <laughs> him And meanwhile, so I, t- I send that video to my sister. I go, I'm like, well, you know, I never really made it in life, but does it count playing trumpet and having, you know, Dave Matthews, saxophone player, document it and send you the video? I, I All of a sudden, I had a whole new respect from my sister.
2: All right, so now we go to Hampton 70, and uh, this was when we were backstage just trying to get quotes about Colonel Bruce Hampton from anyone we could, but we knew
0: John Fishman was there, and we knew, gee, we might not – we won't get a lot of time with him. And he was like, straight up, he's like, guys, I'm not. Oh, yeah. And his Vermont accent, he's like, I'll give you 20 minutes. Well, an All hour right. later. <laughs> 50 minutes later. <laughs> uh, Paging Jonathan Fishman, please come down. <laughs>
2: but as we were running up the stairs with him, you know, to do the interview, I kept dropping names to to get him familiar, you know. Yeah, you know, Ben Hunter, friend of mine, I'm Arnie Davis, I'm <laughs> So by the time we're upstairs, it was like, well, at least this isn't just someone out of nowhere. He knows you from Jam Cruise, and we have shared history. I was I was in the BU scene that when Fish started coming through, so uh, it was nice to be on I don't know even footing with him. Not really, I guess. I, but I don't
0: think even footing.
2: You know what I'm saying? It was just three guys chatting,
0: chatting. Um, but you got it. You uh, uh, you know we did something well, wrong. Did well, we, we, what we did do right is we didn't just hit him up as Fish fans. We right. weren't just. I mean, we were obviously heads. But we weren't just like, uh, well. To be honest with you, I couldn't get him talking about Bruce.
2: So then, at some point, I was like, "Well, fuck it, we'll just talk about fish."
0: He didn't want to talk about Bruce. He mentioned the he aquarium a rescue and a couple things.
2: Yeah, yeah but it really wasn't. Um, well, what's like okay? Folks. I could talk forever. Well, about let's this let's
0: roll this tape here because as you listen to this piece here, you'll understand what we're trying to say because we we lofted a question, he took it somewhere else, and then we got this. And we just went. We just went with it. Sometimes you just gotta go with it, people. And find out,
2: and maybe listen to the whole episode and find out what we did wrong. Because every time we've asked for fish for anything since, we've got no, 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 no. Even the truck driver, I think we tried to <laughs> And we were like, no, he's, he's actually busy. Roll the tape. John Fishman, drummer of Fish you've got to be on the one hand proud of some of the intricate drum beats and in and, 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 and the composed sections of the early fish. But when you took the second hiatus, that was five yeah, but years. you know what?
7: You should know that there's like, like a number of them that I didn't write. Like Trey wrote them on drum machines and really? handed them to me and was like, learn this.
2: So what I want to ask is when you took the second hiatus, which is five years... And then you come back in 09 and have to learn all those. Was there any element of regret? Like, why couldn't we write more simple crap? (laughs) Was it hard to relearn that stuff? It's so... I mean, I've talked to drummers who point out what you do and say, that's really difficult what he's doing right there. That's really hard to do, and he
7: does it with ease. Well, the... um, I mean, there's a couple songs. Like, (laughs) all of us will sit around and go, oh my God, we're fucking relearn this but like, you know, I'm not gonna tell you which ones I are just because I don't wanna I don't want like, you it's know it's ice. But, no, no, actually it's ice is well for me, I, I can't speak for the other guys, but for me that one for whatever reason sticks stays with me pretty easily. I, oh. that one's not um that one I that that was a beat that I came up with for the 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 riff that da 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 I wrote the beat for that based the riff had come first and so I wrote a beat around it and I actually um, it's it's just a straight beat with like a little there's like a little kink in the end of the phrase and it's, it's it's I don't know for whatever reason that one's easy for me to remember and um, that weird thing in the middle that 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 thing is um, it's actually easy to remember because it's a very it's a very structured it's three five and seven all on top of each other and it's very very mechanically um like set thing you know so if you remember one little part like if you just get out of the gate right you, your body will fall mm-hmm. into the rest of it so a lot of that muscle one, memory in that yeah there's a lot of muscle memory in that one and yeah, you know, when when we had the big break and i had to come back and put that one back together like it is a little bit of a pain in the ass but that one wasn't so um but there's others that are <clears throat> that aren't as much they don't have as much rhyme and reason They aren't like a single structure from beginning to end. It's just quirky all the way through, and you just have to kind of – it's just – it's a memory. Like you just have to remember there's five of these, now there's six of those, there's three of these, and then there's eight of those, and, and then I'm out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then you know and, and you have to not let what the other guys are doing fuck you up and then you so but i've gotten with all those things that were like that i've gotten to where now i can really hear the other people's parts and where my part relates to their parts if i fall off and they're doing their part right i can get back on uh-huh. but if if i'm listening to something that i still have to in that, in that thing i still have to it's funny because those types of things because see to me in music the rule is i should be the last one i'm listening to right i don't want to be listening to me i want to be listening to what the other people are doing and then adjusting what i'm doing according to what i'm hearing them do right because three heads are better than one so if i get all my ideas from what's coming from their brains i never run out of ideas right and not that I'm going to mimic what they're doing, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not there to mimic people, but, but you know, and we had a lot of improvisational exercises we were doing in rehearsal where they're, they're like, one, that's specifically a non-mimicking exercise where you do something and uh, and then you go and then you go and then I go, and then you have to change what you're doing, you go in a circle, you change what you're doing a little tiny bit. And then all of us collectively, the other three, then have to immediately alter what we're doing according to what your change inspired, but not mimicking you. We can't do what you're doing, but we have to – whatever be influenced by whatever it. that influence changed, I have to change what I'm doing and as quickly as possible settle into the new pattern. And then when you hear that collectively the whole unit has resettled into a new pattern, everyone says, hey, right? And then when everyone said, hey, then you go and you make a change and then all of us simultaneously change to that. And then you say, hey, Then the next person goes. And you start to hear, you can really hear as a group, like the, the the group becomes sort of one instrument. You can really hear when it settles in. You can really hear when one little piece is not quite settled into its new pattern. And the idea is to do it as quickly as possible with no aesthetic judgment whatsoever. This isn't about sounding good or anything. It's about just making, reacting as quickly as possible, finding a new pattern, not judging it at all, but letting it, you know, And then that started to take on its own sound. And so then we did exercises to get away from that so that we wouldn't keep coming up with like little teeny short phrases that we'd have longer trains of thought. And, you know, so one exercise would would solve one problem or address one, um, you know, aspect of music. But then it would create a, a new question, you know, and so then you'd come up with an exercise to answer that address that question and then that would create another question and that just keeps going and going and going and i think that's the endless universe of music is is that but so when i have to go and play certain parts where i really have to listen to myself to get through it i still feel like in the couple of places in our music where that's still the case i i um one of my long-term goals is to get so good at those parts that I really can listen to the, I can play it as if I were improvising and with the same looseness of my mental state. And I can, I can really get through it. Um, and really like whether, whether somebody else falls off their thing or not, I can adhere to it. Or I could even, if they fall off and I've got to go to where they are, I can actually even adjust what I'm doing and stay, you know, like, Kind of fall off my pattern and get right back on it to where, where their thing would be in my pattern. Like I, I want to get that flexible. That to me would be the highest level of those worked out sections. Is to is to get to where, even the hardest ones I can, I can play. You know, with with enough ease that I can listen to everybody else while I'm doing it. It's kind of almost like an
0: outer body experience. Almost. Yeah.
7: Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a little bit. Um, but there are some that, I mean definitely we've in some <clears throat> times in our history have, you know we've outwritten our, like you know, we've, like Trey's been good at writing stuff that mm-hmm. none of us including himself could play <laughs> 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 you know at, at first and we worked really hard so to play it but, but, but then yeah but then there's stuff that sure I mean and getting older I mean you know I think all of us are still pretty pretty good at getting around our instruments but you know, are you still doing those exercises that you speak of uh no, not in the same sort of band practice ways that we have, but like a sound check. I mean, that stuff is so ingrained now that we're kind of always doing it. So like, even when you came back after 5 years, that yeah. part came back quickly and easily? Yeah, I think we did some of those exercises in the beginning when we were rehearsing for those um uh, Hampton gigs were, were the, the ones that we did in March 09 that come back we did a bunch of rehearsals there were some of those exercises to kind of get back on the horse and everything but that's like when the four of us get together all of that stuff is really pretty unspoken now Hello. I mean you only get one fish in a lifetime I could never I mean as good as all the people in this room are and, and as many great musicians as are I would never be able to have enough time in my life to have all the conversations that I'd gotten through with the people and fish to, to where all yeah. of us are just by second nature automatically know how mm-hmm. we're all going into it. We're all going yeah. into this with this. Uh, we all understand what we understand. We all understand the volume of what we understand about. You know,
0: that, that really, that you just put words to a question that a lot of fans ask, which is how do these guys, when you guys perform, there's a magic that takes place. And how does that happen? I think one of the, one of the ingredients is exactly what you just said. I mean, there's so much of you inside of each other, you know.
7: Well, a whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And, you know, Fish has been going for 33 years. And there's never been a point where we've stopped kind of developing ideas or how we approach things. Um, I mean, we've never mailed in the gig. You know, it's not like we all go a separate Can way. Can I speak it's to
2: that? From- the first time I saw you was a place called Molly's in Austin, Massachusetts. <clears throat> And it was pretty empty, and my friend musician John Shane, the first time he saw him, was at the Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill. It was pretty empty, too. You guys come out and do a full two-set show and throw down anyways. That speaks to what you just said.
7: Well, I mean, you spend all those hours in the practice room, and you go go do a gig. You might as well do the gig. I mean, you know, you're playing. I don't... I've never cared. We... The reason we stopped... When we opened for Santana for a tour, because they were kind of an exception to the rule, which was we we weren't going to have bands open for us anymore, and we weren't going to... The reason we stopped having opening bands was because we realized audiences have a certain fatigue level. Like, you can only hear so much music before your ears start to get tired and stuff like that. So, like, if you... You know, if the Aquarium Rescue Unit or whoever... I mean, as much as I may love them or... You know, it's like they're going to go out and play for an hour, hour and 15 minutes. Then you're going to go play for another three, three and a half hours. I mean... It just wipes people out. I think by the... We would notice when we had opening bands that by the midway through the second set, the room would just start to clear out. And I don't think it was... I don't... I mean, it may be because we were sucking. I don't know. But I just think it's like a lot. It's a lot to ask of an audience. And what about music to, festivals? Though, that's... Well, if you're going to a festival, it's kind of a different thing uh-huh. because there's all that other stuff going on. There's multiple stages. There's plenty of places to go get food and rest and all that kind of stuff. So people kind of pick and choose what they want. But I... I mean, there may be some people that will hang out there for eight hours and just go from stage to stage, but I'm guaranteeing you they're all nineteen fucking years old and they're well but but you know and but and and maybe if I'm at a festival I might do that too like I'm just gonna catch everybody here I'm gonna, I mean when I go to the New Orleans Jazz fest, I certainly did that I'd spend the whole day at the fairgrounds and go from tent to tent and when in doubt I went to the gospel tent and you know and and i and i I just uh And it was great, but that's what you're there for, you know. And I think when you go to see, you know, fish, like, I mean, when I would go see the Rolling Stones and they always have like two or three opening acts. Everybody in that stadium doesn't give a fuck about the opening act. Right. They just want to see the Stones for Christ's right. sake. I get it. They're the Stones, and you're going to sit there till the end of the world to watch them. But for the most part, I got to say, the three times I went to see the Stones, it was a fairly miserable experience because by the time the Stones came on, I was already like tired and hungry and hot, and f- I'd been there for like five hours. You know what I mean? It was like a, you know, and Jagger's prancing it, all over the place. No, yeah. uh, you know. But I mean, it's st- but. It's not, uh, you know, if you're going to see a band, you're usually going to see that band and the other bands you're psyched to see maybe two. But anyway, that's why we stopped having openers. We were just stage pigs and we just decided we just want to <laughs> just play the whole gig ourselves. And then, and then we stopped opening for bands because we realized we'd rather play for five people that are there to see us than for 5,000 that are there to see somebody else, you know? Uh-huh. And the one exception we made was Santana at that point because we just felt like what they do... Is really compatible with what we were doing. That their audience actually probably would like us. It's not like huh. Hendrix opening for the Monkees.
0: It wasn't that you, you know wanted a I mean? percussion player for a tour that you decided to open. No, the but they had. <laughs> you
7: sat in a bunch with them, right? Well, well, I mean, Carlos is the most gracious host as a you know headlining band that you could ever encounter. I mean, the guy almost made us sit in with him every night i mean uh-huh. it was all four of us too would sit in with their band for like three songs every night I did stand, you say anything or I just go and... no it was a i, I think it was like the certain you know he played pretty much the same show every night except for like there would be two or three songs that would kind of be different but there was always like the sort of the middle part of the show we bring us out and it was like i can't remember which songs but it was like Oye, como va? Or, you know some ones that you'd be really familiar with, and and there'd be like there was a drum section, and you know I'd be sitting there, I'd be standing there with Carl prazo and Ro. I mean, talk about being out of your, <laughs> Jesus Christ! I mean, I I just I, I love those guys, but I I was really it was intimidated. I believe but Carl Prazo and raul Cal are like, and I'm standing between them with like a cowbell or something, <laughs> and, and, and Ken, you know, and Carl's going. Here's your pattern, man. You know, this is what you play. And I would just play that and try to learn the different, man. I had this one moment. I, Raul, uh, Carl, so I, I was, uh, you know, the Yamar, the song Yamar. It's just like a little Calypso beat. It, I play It's like left-handed and a little p- kick drum pattern and snare pattern. And it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty standard Calypso groove. And um, I was playing that and it, it was, it was, Carl came into the rehearsal room and he saw me play, and he goes, oh, man. He goes, let me show you the Aruba 6-8. This is cool. you like it. It's very similar to that. So he sits down at the kit. and he, he plays it. And I, I kind of grasp it, but I, I'm not, you know, I, I kind of need to sit with something and really work my way through it. I, I can't, I'm not really good at just, like, bite ear hearing, like, some really syncopated thing really quickly and just picking up what I'm not as much as you think I would be I'm not and so, I, I, and so a lot of times I transpose like I'll, I'll transcribe stuff I'll write it out and look at how everything lines up and go oh okay yeah and really like crawl through it to, to where I can get you know play it you know um well and uh so Carl says oh let me show you the Aruba eight. so he does it and and I sit down with the kit and I kind of get it and then he goes no no it's this and shows me and I kind of get to where I can roughly do it right and uh, and then he leaves the room, right? And then they go do a sound check. We go do the gig, and I had to go over some some material for that gig. And um, and then like the next day, we're at whatever the next venue was. We're in Europe, you know. And and he comes in and he goes, "Hey, man, show me the Ruba six And I go, "Ah, oh, I I didn't really. You got to show that to me again because I I didn't really internalize it, and I didn't get to work on it after you left the room because I had to do you know, first rehearsal stuff." And he just looks at me, his head just drops and he just like, shakes his head and, and turns around and he walks out. Ooh. <laughs> I Ouch. was like, no! Come back! Come back!
0: Well, Rob, at that point, if, we, if you go on, you'll hear about the Fishman hug, but we're not going to go there, Rob. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, that was a great talk. That, that, uh, that interview, we've gotten more feedback from than just about any, but... We've n- we've not been able to sit down with anyone from Fish since. What do you think we did wrong?
0: Was it too buddy-buddy? Was it too... That's probably it's nothing to do with that. We just haven't been backstage where we could just pull one of the guys up. We have to go through fucking red tape, and and that's that's why. Well, we had a studio, a professional studio,
2: immediately adjacent to where one of them was playing. That
0: doesn't matter. You still got to like book it. You got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to get approval from this person who's got to go ahead and say this. And he walked by four times while we were... Well, anyways, our next interview segment
2: is from the Wonder Kid, the fastest rising star in trad jam, which, as Seth has, has loves to point out, has been a, a big theme of our show.
0: Well, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's if you go well, first of all, we're gonna be we're gonna be uh, airing here Billy Strings, and what Rob's talking about is it's kind of interesting how. Through these five years, we've talked to so many different genres of music, musicians from these genres. One that really grew and grew fast was the bluegrass, the new grass, bluegrass, however you want to call it. Trad jam, I call it, man. Trad jam. But if it wasn't the infamous string dusters or
2: Love Me. them. May I? While well, well, you say them, I mean the uh, the String Dusters. Um, we had Chris and Andy, episode forty-eight, and also we had a hybrid of leftover two members of Leftover with two members of the String Dusters in sixty-five. One episode. of my favorite
0: episodes was with
2: Vince Herman. Vince Herman was episode forty-six. Seth and him really hit it off. We also had Drew uh, Drew Emmett and Tweener F, and then we had both of them together. In the 30 years episode uh, 70, 30 years of salmon.
0: Green sky, bluegrass.
2: We had Anders back in uh, episode 51 and 52. And Paul Hoffman in episode seventy-seven, Seth and Paul bonded to such an extent that Paul gave him about parenting that Paul gave him a shout-out before his song about parenting. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, what 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 festival? The little festival that never gives. Candler Park, right, right, Fest. Right, no, one.
0: they're wonderful. They they've been very supportive. Yeah, they're good
2: for exercise. I have to jog all the way around. Well, you look at you. They're and doing they'd be, you a favor. And they'd be I fuck, for a Marcus Jesus King interview Because they can't give us a fucking pass. But who else? Seth, Peter yes. Rowan, who called me a historian, episode 74 and 75. John Stickley. John Stickley was episode 60. Sam Bush, episode 16. And
0: let's not forget, not only talking to Tim Carbone of Railroad Earth, episode forty one. later on, a couple years later, having the full band come in right before their New Year's run and do an in-studio performance and interview.
2: I got to say, episode 94, Railroad Earth, and the episode 70, 30 Years of Salmon, those are some of the most under-listened, surprisingly under-listened to episodes. I don't know why. Maybe I don't think the band's really gave much love online. Folks, check those out. Uh, uh, we even, Vince kindly did a David Bromberg song for us, remember?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back there.
2: Check those out on the Railroad Earth. They perform. Todd and I talk about we both were there the night Bob Weir played when Jerry had died. At, we were both there at Hampton Beach Club Casino. I was there as an attendee, and he was there as the frontman of the opening act. And
0: there are several other in this genre we've talked to but it's I just again I find it interesting that oh Sam Bush we mentioned we had to mention yes Sam Bush, episode right? 16 so
2: I yeah. asked him if he discovered Bela Fleck and his answer could be a sound effect if we ever start using sound effects <laughs> if we <laughs> ever isolate stuff that would be perfect yeah well what a stupid
0: th- it's just interesting that this genre uh, I mean. mean because you and I are not known to be seen at every single bluegrass show that comes through I was the stupid one well I'm I've, more I've oh, we,
2: bluegrass than you are though well no I mean I, I'm I, an old I, Merlefest you know and I'll i I go down. What do you, what do you say I've been like to the joval Festival up in Massachusetts. I've been to uh, the, the the what's the Eagle one up in uh, yeah. But yet, we're in New York, Massachusetts border. This Eagle something.
0: Uh, we've had the Shook Twins. We've had uh, oh, McCurry on. We've had some good stuff. Ronnie
2: McCurry, Bill nursey Oh yeah, nursey That's right. But here we have the great Billy Strings. He talks about being young. Uh, getting his first guitar. He talks about
7: being young.
0: He is young still at this point.
2: And it builds to this wonderful story. So these, these last two clips are a little long, but there's... It's a good example of really good conversation, in my opinion. And this show at its best or things like the conversations we had with John Fisherman and Billy Strings. So that's why those are long clips. Go and ahead, Seth. you
0: know, I feel bad that I didn't say this earlier. I want to say it now. I want to thank Jam Bass. Jam Bass has been super supportive to us throughout. So, Since even the beginning, even when we were with with, with Live for Live Music, Jam Bass was sharing our our podcast out there when there's a storyline and Scotty B has been a guest on our show several times twice.
2: Yes. And uh,
0: that's several jam base also
2: during this lockdown, the live stream page, letting you know a bunch of, not all of them. They miss some of them, but whatever they really give you options almost pretty much every night of stuff you could watch. And then they also during COVID have started their video uh, archive. So there's, you know, Jam bases and has, has helped entertain a lot of people during this time when when we've been stuck at our homes. So, and we'll go we'll go heavy on this this part two uh, at the front of the episode on jam Bass. Good point. All right, so where are we at now? Billy Strings, ladies, you're gonna take Ed. us, and we're gonna end with a Billy Strings. One of the songs that he performed for us. If you want to hear the whole interview, it's episode sixty seven. We we have uh, three songs that he played for us, and then we've got some other musical tidbits from uh, from his live act at the
0: time. And Seth take us away take us oh. to the cassette can i give it can i give it a, a big ladies and gentlemen is that okay i guess ladies and gentlemen please now appearing on WTNS oh, it's time for the one and only billy street
8: When I was, you know, three years old, I, you know, three or four years old, I can remember my dad, you know, he's a hell of a guitar player. He's amazing.
2: And singer David Grisman said he sounds like mm-hmm. Ralph Stanley. And if you listen to the last track on Tinfoil and, Tur- and
8: Turmoil, yeah. it, it justifies what he said. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, he's, he's one of the best I've ever heard in that same thing we mentioned earlier, putting your emotion into it. He does that. He embodies a song. He when he sings, he 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 really means it. You know, I go and perform every night and we play 22 songs every single night probably and you know, uh sometimes you go up there and you you're doing something and you know, it's like you shouldn't be thinking about anything else but the song, you know. And like my dad when he sings, he's doing that so much that you know if it's a sad song he'll cry you know like he he's singing these words about some poor feller sitting there crying at a bar or something and he's envisioning that it that is him he's not just like going through the motions he really every time he's singing he reaches down into his heart and tries to pull that out and he, and you can hear it when he sings it's honest you know it's it's a real thing it's like so it reminds
0: me of like when you talk to an actor And how they channel the character And how sometimes they get lost or Like the Jim Carrey uh, yeah, you, saw, you saw that special much, on yeah. Netflix a Similar thing like that where they really just embody it Yeah, you but get, get lost in it Such
2: an enormous benefit to you though Because I, I talk to so many musicians who are like Yeah, I learned the notes and then I got older And I realized it's about the emotion Seems like right from the start you got a key Intangible about music because of your
8: father's Passion for it Yeah, um, you know, early on, I, like I said, I heard a lot of bluegrass. Um, My dad, he spoon-fed me Doc Watson's music when I was little. And this was in Michigan? Yep, up in Michigan. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Muir, M-U-I-R, and it's right outside of Ionia, and it, just a little bit bigger, smaller town. <laughs> and uh, so he raised me on Doc Watson and Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, Larry Sparks was a big one around my house, Jimmy Martin, um stuff like that. Of course, uh Carter and Ralph's, you know, the Stanley Brothers. And uh my dad had this friend Brad Lasco. I we called I called him Uncle Brad. He was my dad's like best, you know, one of his best friends. And so us three, we'd pick a bunch, you know, and he he played five-string banjo and my dad him, they sang really good together. And you initially played mostly rhythm, right? I I played all rhythm back then. Yeah, and my dad would when it was just me and my dad picking. I just played rhythm, and he would pick the lead, and um, so I learned how to play rhythm guitar first. You know, we played tunes like Beaumont Rag and uh, Salt Creek, and you know, Long Journey Home and stuff like that. He sh- he taught me how to play Big Sandy and Leather Britches and uh, and I just played that rhythm, man. And I learned how two guitars could work together where, you know, if he uses a capo and comes and plays up here or higher on the neck and then if I don't use a capo, it sounds pretty cool cuz the one guitar is more of a lower bass sound and then if you put the capo up on the other guitar but you're playing in the same key, it makes them guitars really ring together and kind of he taught, you know, he taught me about that. Um but uh well let me ask you this. He turns you on to Hendrix and Zeppelin too. What did he think when...
2: Obviously, that probably led you toward metal. What was his feeling of you becoming a bit of a metalhead?
8: Yeah, um, they never pushed me or pulled me in any direction. My parents didn't. They, in fact, never even pushed music upon me. It was... I sought it out because I thought my dad was really cool. You know what I mean? Like When I was a little kid... I'd be at these parties and my dad would be playing and, uh, Brad and him and everybody's all picking and singing. Everybody else who doesn't play was just standing around smoking, drinking, you know, just laughing, partying, and having a good time. And I was just a little shit running around these parties, you know, <coughs> you know, and, uh, I noticed the happiness that my dad brought through music to all those people. I was like, I was just like, man, my dad, you know, everybody loves him. You know, everybody loves when he sings and stuff, you know. So, just like, I want to get a guitar, Dad. You know, and so he got me a little guitar and taught me G, C, and D. Gave me a capo, and you're on your way then in the bluegrass world. If you know three, those three chords, you're, you know, you can... Uh, <laughs> did you Did you really pitch a fit in the store to get a price on the guitar? Is that... That's, yeah, totally true. Um, it was an antique store, and... So my first guitar was a little plastic, battery-powered thing. Of course, I didn't even have batteries in it, but it was you know they had buttons on the fretboard. This was the early '90s. It was all neon colors and white plastic toy guitar, basically. And I used Fisher to price.: Yeah, exactly, something like that. So this thing had a little speaker right on the middle of the guitar, where the sound hole would be on an acoustic guitar, and it had horizontal ridges of plastic ridges, like strings. My dad gave me a pick. And so when I was still in my high chair with spaghetti all over my face, I was, you know, playing that thing and getting my chick 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 mm-hmm. I could scratch on that thing and make rhythm. So that was my first guitar, and that was when I was about three years old. And then the next guitar that I got was from the antique store, and uh, we were walking through there one day. My mom loves old-fashioned stuff, and I love junk. I, lo- I just love rusty old shit. I don't know. Um, but so we were walking through this antique store one day, and I just saw this light shining on that guitar, man. And it was just amazing. I, I still remember exactly how I felt when I seen it. I just, I needed that guitar. I had to have it, you know. And my dad had like 30 bucks to his name, you know, and the guitar was 50 or something. And I was just, you know, he's like, come on, dude. Like, don't do this right now. And I'm like, but dad, I really need this thing. And he's <laughs> like, "I, you know, and the woman at the store is going, oh, it's $50. And, and then, uh. You know, that woman said, it looks like he really needs that thing, so I can do it for 30 you know, and so he took his last $30 out of his wallet that he had and wow. bought me that guitar, and uh, gosh, I'm glad he did, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, so then I went home. I learned G, C, and D. The first song I ever learned was uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky. That's the first, long, first song I ever ever played on the guitar, and I played it on about one or two strings. And um, you know, I just play that melody, do 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 do. That's uh, the first tune I ever learned, and uh, Brad, Uncle Brad's w- uh, wife, Lynn, she always asked me to play that song when I was little. Play me a Ghost Riders in the Sky, Bill. And I was like, man, But how do you cool. go from
2: Oh the Wind and Rain to Crazy Train? What take me on that journey?
8: Okay, so bluegrass, my whole childhood, you know, up until up until, man, I was probably like. You know, nine and ten years old. My parents—they listened to the White Album. They listened to uh, Zeppelin two II and three, and they listened to Are You Experienced. They listened to uh, Paranoid, Masters of Reality. They listened to uh, all that, all that kind of stuff, you know. And so, it wasn't until I'm probably about I was nine or ten, and woke up Christmas morning and I saw a little red Stratocaster sitting under the tree, (laughs) a Squire Mini, little short-scale thing, So, and a pig-nose amp, battery-powered little pig-nose amp, yep. And that was my first electric guitar, and that's how I learned how to bend the strings. Now, remember, I was only playing rhythm. I only ever really played rhythm guitar, just chords. When I got that little Strat, I learned how to bend. My dad showed me how to just bend the strings to make the... The octave, you know, or the you know, like do that whole Hendrix vibe thing, like the and and then I started to kinda get the get the feel for taking like a blues guitar solo, more of like a Hendrix kind of flavor, you know, or like I started listening to Jimi Hendrix, man. And then uh my dad brought me into his room one day and I was you know, this was back even before then
0: uh, so this is where, which is where your dad doesn't talk about the birds and the bees He talks about the birds and the bee flats The
2: plants and the pages
0: Man, he, <laughs> he brought me into his room
8: You know, he did this twice He did it with David Grisman I can uh, Twice that I remember Well, a couple times He did it with uh, both, you know, David Grisman and Black Sabbath But he also did it with Johnny Winter and uh, King Crimson he, I remember he specifically called me into his room From across the house Hey, get in, I gotta show you something what you know, and I walk in his room like I feel like I'm in trouble, you know. And he's like, "Sit down," and I'm like, "All right." And then he puts on Black Sabbath, you know, the first record. So you were in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I was that I found out what trouble really was, you know, and, uh, that first Don't song. I'm paranoid you know, about, dude. The the storm and the bell tolling and the rain, and then you know what is this that stands before me? And it's like all, I I was terrified, and um. He had an amazing sound system and he turned that shit up really loud and kind of, I don't know if he thought it was funny or what, but he showed me Black Sabbath. I also remember when he pulled me in and showed me David Grisman, you know, cause he, he, he just got a mandolin and, and I had known Doc Watson's music since I was a baby, but he pulled me into his room one day and sat me down and showed me Doc and Dog and said, listen, son, this is David Grisman. You need to know who this is. And let's do a side journey on that and we'll come back to here take me into the room when you get to introduce your dad to David Grisman. Oh, that was another whole trip, man. The, because you I know I mean that
2: must be one of the greatest moments of your life so far to really give back to your dad in that way.
8: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh absolutely. Where was The it? most full circle thing? It was at this venue and I think like somewhere near Cincinnati or Columbus or something like that. And uh we had been out on the road opening up for uh dell and dog so you know and and this is how my life is now like this kind of stuff happens and then i call my parents and i I call my dad and i say dad you're not gonna believe this like i just you know uh i just got to play with sam bush or um i just met uh you know so and so or seldom seen just asked me to come sit in with him dad like you know uh and i i do that all, you know whenever something like that happens it, it that's what I do is just because, man, it's like that dude has got me into this stuff, you know. And so every time I reach a milestone like that or something, it's like or just meet somebody who he would, you know, be really stoked to meet. You know, we played at the Ryman recently and I brought him down and got to pull them out on stage to sing, you know, where Hank Williams and Elvis Presley and Bill Monroe sang. And um, that was, was a huge moment. Bob Weir. Yes, I just interviewed yeah, a yeah. Bob Weir from there. Right on. <laughs> um, but so... I was out on the uh road opening up for Dell and Dog and I made sure I got my parents to come down to see the show from Michigan. And so we were all there. And I man, I had met Dog a few times, you know, we've kind of become buddies or whatever and um and Dell too and Dell and Jean and the whole family and uh I uh invited my parents down and my and my Aunt Roxanne came. And that's another funny thing. My Aunt Roxanne, she's blind. And so when I invited them all in, and I, I was bringing them into the room where Dog and Del were to introduce my family to those guys, and first thing my aunt does is walks right in that room with her cane and goes, "What?" And she's like, what was that? And, uh, it was Madeline? No, it was Del's old, old 30s Martin. Oof, oof, oof. And he goes, oh, you can't hurt that old thing.
9: <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs>
8: And, uh, so then turn on the red light, you know, so, so then I, 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 you know, I say, dad, this is David Grisman, David Grisman, this is my dad and Del, this is my dad, you know, and, uh, that's what my dad told me when I was little. Now, listen, this is David Grisman. You need to know him. So that's what I did. I said, no, 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 dad, this
2: is actually David Grisman. Yeah. So that was a record thing.
8: Yeah. So then, you know, the three of us, uh, get out our instruments, or me and my dad are actually, we sat there and picked a few tunes first, and Del and Dog are sitting there listening to me and my dad play uh, uh, some fiddle tunes. I remember we played Give the Fiddler a Dram and uh, "Whistlin' Rufus and Ragtime Annie and stuff like that, and, and we had some harmonies going on, and man, they were just sitting there listening to us play, and then all of a sudden Dog got his mandolin out. Okay. Next thing you know, me and my dad and Del McCurry and David Grisman uh are singing the lonesome river wow and i'm singing lead and my dad's singing up above me and Dell's hitting that big high note up there meanwhile David Grisman's playing tremolo it, 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 just take me now you know it was like it, that was so huge so huge for me you know and mostly to uh Man, I feel like I'm gonna cry. You know, to
0: it's just the Indian food.
8: Intru- to introduce my dad to to those guys, man. Like,
0: yeah. well, who who's alive still today that that you would most want to be able to do that again with, or for the first time, but for with your father. And Tony Rice doesn't count.
8: Mac Wiseman. Wow, interesting. And why? He was huge growing up, man. Like my dad. Um, He's got a huge love for Mac uh, from his, his mom, Doreen, my grandmother.
9: The first scene was that of a gambler Who lost all his money at play Took his dead mother's ring from his finger That she wore on her glad wedding day earthly treasure he staked it and bowed that the shame he might hide they lifted his head but alas he was dead is a picture from life's other side is a picture from a life's other side of someone who fell by the way, a light has gone out with the tide that might have been happy someday. Some poor old mother at home waits the ships that come in with the tide waiting to hear from a loved one so dear, it is a picture from life's other side
8: He's still alive, man. He hangs out in Nashville. Some of my friends go and visit him every once in a while and and uh, he they he'll sit there and sing with you and stuff. It just he's he's an enormous figure to to my father, therefore to me, you know. I mean these guys are they're legends, man, like beyond anything that I can comprehend, you know. But do you feel in within you at
2: all the importance of being so young and uh, you know, I you're going to be carrying this music to a whole bunch of new listeners, so to them, you seem very valuable and, and a special thing as well.
8: Well, I just, you know, I always just feel like totally grateful and knocked out. You know, I'm just like, I I grew up in a little town, and you know, just with my family, and we never, I never thought playing music like for a career or. You know, uh, it was just something that it was a, a natural way of life um, for me, and I never thought it was going to be like my career path or anything. I also never thought I'd be able to meet and make music and also have relationships with people who I've looked up to and pretty much worshiped mm-hmm. since I was a child. And, you know, like I said, these guys are just huge figures to me. <laughs> All right, I'll give this one a shot and see if I can do it. Nah, uh, my dad plays this one uh, awful pretty. And it's called uh, Memories of You.
5: Honey, they fill my heart with pain and i know that you'll never honey be in my arms again you say you found
8: We've played, you know, or I've seen him play a few times, and and we've uh, played on some of the same bills together, I think. But I don't, I don't know him personally or anything. Uh, I I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to. I love his playing, man. I love his show. He he fucking rocks it out, man. It's so cool.